Hey everyone, welcome to Conversation Piece with Patrick Armstrong. I am the titular Patrick, and this is a show where we talk about the missing pieces of the conversations we're already having. Shout out to all our returning listeners, and a high five and hello to everyone joining us for the very first time. Thank you so much. My guest today is an Asian American, Chinese American pianist, Grammy finalist, music educator, scholar, activist, dog mom, and lifelong Brooklyn, New Yorker. She is a founding music teacher and arts coordinator at PS 532 New Bridges Elementary, an arts integrated public elementary school in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. She graduated from New York University with a Bachelor of Music and Piano Performance and a Master of Arts in Music Education and is currently a doctoral candidate in music education at Boston University. She is passionate about decolonizing, anti-bias, anti-racist, abolitionist, public music education, and empowering the individual and collective voices of youth through music as expression. It is an honor and my privilege to welcome Alice Soy to the show. Hey, Alice, thanks for joining me. Hey, Patrick, I'm so honored to be here today. It is my honor to have you here. And again, it is such a privilege to be able to have this conversation with you today. Thank you so much for your time and your energy and whatever effort that you want to give to the show today. Um, a little background context for people out there listening or watching or however they're taking this in right now. Alice and I got connected on Instagram, I think a long time ago, especially like maybe mid pandemic, I would say, yeah. or like early yeah. pandemic, I think we started to follow each other and each other's work. And I was really drawn to just your passion towards the social justice aspect and impact of all of these things that were happening. And then we had the privilege of both being nominated as community trailblazers for the Asian American Foundation, and then got to meet in person this past May in New York, for Taft's annual gala. And so we had a lot of fun. I was, it was very nice to meet you in person. Very nice to be able to hang out with you and Tony and Rohan and, and Liz and just be in community together. And I think that was, I don't know, I just felt I came away like really feeling like I met a kindred spirit in terms of like the work and, and what it is that we want to accomplish and what it means to be, I guess, an activist and an advocate. So I just wanted to say, give our listeners and our and our viewers a little bit of that background and just say thank you again, because I feel like your work really has helped inform what I want to do from a storytelling perspective with this show. So thank you. I appreciate all those kind words. And I definitely agree. I feel that I'm in kindred community with y'all, all the people that you named, Tony, Rohan, Liz, are all incredible folks. And, you know, I think it's it's so special when you get to be in this same shared space as someone. Um, it's almost like the presence itself is enough. And then when you get to talking, it's even, it's it's like the icing on top. You know, you get to just even hear and dig deeper um, while also just casually talking about life. So there's such a great um, connection there for me too. A hundred percent. And like, we really hit it off i felt like especially you rohan tony and i and we were just like in the group chat like we were just having a real good time having not only just a good conversation but like deep conversations about what we want to see from like events like that and just what we what, the types of things that we want to see for our community and again that's like one of the things that i walked away with was how do i take this energy back to my local community and really do the things that i see my friends doing in all of the respective places that they are so again 
thank you for giving me that energy for hyping me up in that way. Even if you may not have known that was what was happening, definitely was. And I got a lot of things cooking here in Indianapolis, and I can't wait to share them with everyone. Um, But that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about you. We're here to talk about the things that you're working on and the missing pieces of conversations of the things that you're involved in. But before we get to that, I introduced you a little bit, gave a little bit of the things that you are currently doing, currently involved in. But for people who are listening and watching who may not know who you are, do you mind sharing just a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name is Alice Soy, that's spelled T-S-U-I. And in Mandarin Chinese, my name is Xu Xiaolan. Um, and so a little bit about that, because I like to talk about name also, is that my dad um, emigrated from, my, my family's originally from Shanghai. China. And so my dad emigrated from Hong Kong, which is why my last name is transliterated as TSUI. And just a little bit more nuance on that. If my parents had immigrated from um, a different, not Hong Kong, but just other parts of the mainland, my last name would be XU. And so it, that's like in transliteration, right? And how nuanced the Chinese languages and dialects are. And then for my Shanghainese name, actually, it's the same thing as Mandarin, but just as Shanghainese, it sounds so different. It's Shishale. So there's just so okay. many on that. Um, and I think it's important to talk about name because so often we talk about just like reclaiming parts of identity, so right. which I know you talked about um, in other um, interviews that you've had on your podcast, which is fantastic and needed. That's a little bit about my name. I'm the first generation to be born here. Um, I identify as American-born Chinese, ABC. And I am the first in my family to pursue higher education, go to college, um, all that jazz. And I founded a music program at New Bridges Elementary. I'm going to go to my 11th year of teaching, which is wild to say aloud. (laughs) <laughs> and I just love, yeah, I just love teaching. I've always known that I wanted to be a teacher um, and a musician. I'm a pianist. And I think, you know, we're going to touch about upon this a little bit later. But for me, over time, I've really just learned how to use my voice to speak up and to speak out for things that I believe in. And a lot of that work happened in the classroom first, you know, um, and and just having conversations with kids who are so often more honest than adults are in sure. having conversations and being ready to just share what's on their heart and mind. And I've really been inspired to to do the same from my children. And with that, I guess that brings me to my like intersection of different roles that I have um, as an activist, as a scholar in my writing, and as a teacher. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Did one come before the other? Was music the passion first and then education? Or was education, did education come first, that love, that passion, and then music kind of followed along? And then obviously they married at some point and became one shared goal. Yeah. So I started playing piano when I was four. And another um, Asian stereotype that I aim to dispel is that I I loved playing piano as a kid. Mm. It was not that was a chore or that I hated. I just loved it um, because it wasn't presented to me as a chore. And at the same time, I still understood that my parents had to make financial sacrifices to to um, support me playing piano. So I loved playing piano as a kid. I was very lucky to have great music, public great public music educators. Um, throughout my schooling. And so I really um, wanted to become a music teacher when I was in seventh grade and I had an incredible orchestra teacher, Miss Jacobs. Um, and I was playing violin in the orchestra. And 
you know, you have teachers in life, or I hope that everyone has had a teacher in their life where they just feel valued and in a way that's communal. So mm. it was that I felt valued, but the community of students and people were valued. And that's something that really stuck with me over time. And she's a big reason, Ms. Jacobs, why I am a teacher today and that I seek to, to value students in individual and communal ways as well. So I guess it's a little bit about how that intersected over time. And I have just different passions also on the music side, which so often is separate from the education side, but for me, they are intersecting too. Was there a specific moment that you realized this is going to be what I pursue? Or was it like, it was it just the, like, or was Miss Jacobs kind of that, the catalyst for that? Like you said, you know, kind of like helped you see this is something that could be. Was, was there a specific thing that happened where you were like, yes, like I, I was on the fence, but this is now where I'm going to go. This is the path I'm going to walk down. You know, it's interesting because when I was playing piano, playing piano in a solo environment is can be pretty lonesome. Mm. Uh, nothing wrong with that. I mean, I love playing solo piano still, but there's something really special about playing with a group of people. And I think she's someone who just made me realize how special that is um, because there really is like when you vibe with a whole group, you just feel it um, in the air with each other and the music. And I just have such fond memories. So I don't know that it was one specific moment, but just over time, the connection and relationship that she formed with each one of us was so important, I felt. Um, and then ultimately, I think, you know, when you when a teacher has such high expectations of a student, each student and their potential, I think that's really important as well. So kind of fast forward to later in college, I also had such great um, music professors. And I remember one of them saying that his role as a professor, um, Dr. Mendez, he said that his role as a professor, as a, as a teacher, was to see my potential and already mm. yeah, my potential, right? Even if I don't see it. So sure. push children or anyone rather to their potential, even when that person themselves doesn't see it. I think that that's so special to be able to do. And that's something that I seek to do too with my students to push them to their potential, but also in, in ways that are caring and loving. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, when I was doing a little bit of research uh, leading into this conversation, something that I saw as a recurrent theme and throughout was this deep rooted love and passion for being a Brooklyner, like being from Brooklyn. I don't know if I, I've used the correct <laughs> nomenclature there to describe a, a person from Brooklyn, but like that, that passion, those roots run deep in, in you and your work. How have they informed what it is that you want to do, not only from like an, a music educator standpoint, but from your work as an activist and an advocate and doing things from a communal perspective? First of all, I love this question. Um, and, you know, every time I hear Brooklyn, I just want to be like, Brooklyn, <laughs> you know, um, you, we, yeah, we don't refer to ourselves as Brooklyn. I, know, I, I told myself I wasn't going to say that. And then it just slipped out. And I'm like, man, that sucked. I'm like, I really hated that I said that. It's but all good. it's out there now. <laughs> it's out there. Um, but it's all good. Um, I feel like people in New York just either use native New Yorker or just say, like, I'm from Brooklyn. I don't know sure. that there's a term for that but there's such pride for that and um it's so interesting because no one's asked that question so uh, to me before about this this level of pride yeah i grew up here um raised here and 
I think there's something so special about being in Brooklyn because you're at an epicenter of so many neighborhoods filled with different cultures. And for me, a lot of that included hearing hip hop music all around me. And I mm-hmm. think that, you know, when you look at my like resume and stuff like that, you see classical pianists and and things like that. But at the same time as that, I also was listening to like a lot of Jay-Z, Biggie, all the rappers, um, because it was in yep. the streets around us. And so that was a huge influence. And then I don't know, just over time, this, you know, there's this inherent love for for the people around you and, and continuous learning from the people around you. And I think that's what really made me think about learning more about the history of Brooklyn and learning about the history of hip hop in Brooklyn. You know, it's interesting that you're um you're bringing this up also because this year is the 50th anniversary of hip-hop when mm. it was created in the Bronx, but there's so much history from hip of hip-hop in Brooklyn as well. So all of that kind of coming together for me, um, for a long time, I saw that as very separate from my classical piano identity because it wasn't modeled for me that it could interact. And so over time, once I started to think about it, like, why do I sever these different aspects of who I am? But in my kids who I teach at school, like we can, we can rap and we can also like play classical violin, right? There's all the things that we can do. There's no limitation. And those can intersect. And there's so many amazing models of that now. Like I even think about from um, Beyonce's homecoming show, right? You see all of these amazing Black musicians, Black dancers in the background, but also playing um, traditionally Western classical instruments. And there's there's value in that as well as value in the drum line as, and, and that can be married together. And there's a lot of beauty in that too, because I think it's important in music not to discount one or another, but just think about those bridges. So that's a little bit about that. And then in terms of activism, you know, for a long time, I didn't really understand the stories of of Black history from New York and because it was in the textbooks and for that matter, Asian history in in New York either. And only over time, from my own curiosity, I started to just kind of look into it. And there's such a deep history of of both things. I mean, I even think about the term Asian American. I say this often in presentations, but the word, the term Asian American is a political term that was coined by college students in California who were inspired by the Black Power movement. And that's not common knowledge. Mm. It needs to be. It needs right. to be common knowledge. And I think that there's just so many creative ways to to amplify this information for people. A hundred percent. I appreciate you sharing that. I appreciate you sharing all of that background context because I think it's really important for and lays the foundation for this conversation we're about to have. And I think that particularly your ties and your roots in Brooklyn and your community itself and the way that you've gone about learning this history is really important because it gives you that unique perspective on this entire conversation and what things are missing from it. So let's get into that. What do you feel like is missing from the conversation around both activism and education and how those things kind of tie together? What do you think is missing from that? Yeah, there is... There's so many missing pieces on <laughs> on all of these aspects. And these are big ideas, right? When we talk right. about activism, when we talk about music education or education as a whole. And so for me, first, I think it's that we all view education, music education and activism through our own lenses. 
Mm-hmm. And you actually already um, hit on one of the points that I think is missing from the conversation, which is that we all walk these very nuanced lines and careers and lives um, in which we can all activate individually to make change, right? Activism, like for me, activism doesn't, the rallies, the protests are extremely important. Activism is not just that. And so right. often we reduce it to just that, what makes the news a media cycle um, we're not actually accounting for what's happening behind the scenes, right? Even from behind the scenes of like planning these events for the people um, to the celebrations that happen afterwards. And there's so much joy. And I think that leads me to my second piece that's missing so often, the joy factor, right? Activism doesn't always have to just be stop Asian hate, right? I think what a stop Asian hate, for example, um, it's not activating enough um, sure. for me right it's just like just because you stop something doesn't mean that you're starting something else right well the, literally the word stop is like it's like it's, it's almost yeah. like a barrier in, in some ways and it's so interesting because i was part of a couple of conversations during the pandemic um when terms were being thrown out to see like which one would stick and i find it so fascinating that stop asian hate was the one that stuck because there were um terms of like stand for asian americans right. or stand for api or Uprise, right? Things like that, that to me were much more activating. So what does that say about where we are in our Asian American um, movement where we are just asking to stop? So those are things that I think about as well. And then the one more point that I think is missing from the conversation is, or two more points, one is affirmations. So for me, um, affirmations weren't a part of my lived experience growing Mm. up. I never heard affirmations as a kid. It wasn't particularly cultural for me as a Chinese American um, with very traditional Chinese parents. And so I don't, I can't even recall any time that I said like I mattered or any like I statement that was affirming in that way. And I think that, um, or I know that I didn't even know what an affirmation was until I had to teach it. So I can like really define the word. And that I had to teach it because everyone, um, we were taking that on in our school for the teachers. So knowing that, I started to see the power of affirmations with students in a song that I had taught that included the affirmations in the chorus, I matter, you matter, we matter, which mm. you'll um, I say a lot now. And so with that, you know, it's one thing to say the words one time, it's another to start to dive into them and have conversations about them and sing them and sing them communally. Mm. Um, and I think seeing the power of that really shifted my perspective on the power of affirmations in one's life. And that's part of that activist meets educator role for sure. me. Um, and also I hope for others. And then my final thing that I think is missing from conversations is um, amplifying the youth. I think so often we want to make decisions for them as adults and not include them in the conversations that we we seek to create change. So I even think about um, just different conversations on, for example, teaching API history or even teaching Black history or any ethnic studies. Like how often are we including the, the youth in our room from as young as three, four to the college students, the grad students in our spaces? And how much say do they actually have? Um, How much say do we want them to have? That's the real question for many power holders. So I think all of those, um, although they feel like separate ideas in some way mesh together for me and my word, because I think that we have to consider all of these different voices 
um, but also still prioritize joy in this work. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that. I, I love that you broke down multiple different things and the amplifying the youth, I think is so important. My wife would 100% agree with you on that. Like she's like, says the exact same things. Like we need to be having them in the room to have these conversations. Otherwise, you it's like you're just talking at kids and you're not really, you're not, you don't know what it is. You're not asking them what it is that you need, what it is that you want. How do we support you best? It's like, we'll tell you how you get supported. And if it doesn't fit what you need, then you're over here, I guess, you know, yeah, you get left not, out. Just, not just even in the room where like the biggest uh, national decisions get made, but even just like in the family room, right? When, right, right. Or, or the neighborhood room or the after school room, right? How often do kids have choice in our spaces? And if we have to ask that question, how often that it means not often enough. And instead we need to just give them the majority. Like I even think about it from a math perspective uh, or a percentage perspective, like how much time is my voice on versus my student's voice being on or the youth's mm. voice is on um, in adult spaces too. I love that. Thank you so much for naming that. You're right. It's not just those big rooms. It's all rooms. And it comes down. And again, like almost ev all things starts with us and what we're doing individually in our own homes and our own communities, our friend groups, our families. What does that look like? And how does that ripple out? Because once we do it here, we can start to at least affect the changes because we're not acting performatively. We can really internalize that work and push it forward. Um, I really appreciated you talking about affirmations in the way that you did. Like, I didn't grow up with affirmations. I grew up like, I love you and you're supported, but not like you said, the I statements of like, I matter, I, I can do these things, like I'm important in this way. And I love that you like, you know, you your first real defining moment of that was with your students, like leading a song. Can you talk about, if you remember, the feelings and the moments that that specific song, like when that happened? Like, did, was it just like an instant, like light bulb, like, oh, dang, this is something that I've been missing in my own life, like from an affirmation standpoint, or was it like you did it and then you saw how it affected communally with your students and, and everybody involved and then like you simmered on it and then it kind of grew from that point? Yeah, there's a couple of layers to that. Um, singing that, speaking that in class, I just remember it being just very different from how I taught previously so this was in 2016 mm. when i taught this song okay. and even further context of that was that my principal and i were continuing to see the continued black murders across the country at that in, in that summer and then we just saw how it affected our community and how painful that can be for for black children for all children unfortunately and so seeing that, we wanted to be able to respond and also do this in a way that can reaffirm students. Um, mm. But it's also like still, I at that point had taught um, some affirmations before then at a school, but not as deep. Sure. And so I think the moment where it really blew my mind in a way that I knew that I would be thinking about this past the moment was... Um, so as a music educator, when I'm directing performances, you, uh, as many directors might know, you're just kind of in direction mode, right? You mm -hmm. kind of soak in sure. um, everything that's happening from the audience. But at the beginning of the show, my principal had um, asked that I teach the chorus to the entire audience of families. So oh, it was okay. a response and I would sing a line and then they would sing a line and they were invited to join in 
as they wished when we did this as a whole school finale. So just imagine, and this is on YouTube, just imagine like almost 500 children singing this and then multiplied by parents. So like a thousand-ish people um, gathered together, you know, singing, feeling this. And I just remembered that it was, it just felt different um, at the time. And then afterwards I was like, this is this is such a powerful, um, as the title says, moment where um, children can say for themselves that they matter. And for that matter, all of the adults in the room who are watching them, right? Because I think so often when we think about teaching and music education or education overall, it's so much like I teach you, you listen or you absorb, right? That's the banking um, model, but it's it's not that. And I think that's where things really just shifted for me where it's like, oh, an individual affirmation can become a communal moment. Mm. Um, and and with that, I started to seek additional ways to to create that, have students create affirmations over time, have them write, songwrite, rap, et cetera. And it just really opened up new levels of both creativity and ways to affirm the entire community. I love that. And I think feel like what you just said is going to be something that just rings through the rest of the show for until I quit doing podcasting. An individual affirmation can become a communal moment. And I think, you know, that's what I think it gets to this heart, the heart of this concept of this idea of you got to be able to work on yourself and know yourself a little bit in order for you to go and do the work that you're meant to do with other people. And I think. We lose that when we don't grow up in a culture of affirmations, of learning about how to love yourself, give yourself grace in that way. And where it's really, regardless of whatever the context might be, like we're pushed to always succeed, always succeed. And we operate under this mindset of scarcity because our families feel like that's what is the only way you can survive because society tells us that's the only way that we can survive because white supremacy exists in all of our systems. And that's the reason that we feel like there's only one seat when there's a hundred other seats over here, but we're only directed toward this one seat and told this is all we can have. And when that's all, you know, that you can have, you don't know how to affirm yourself because you're like, I've tear this person down. It's not, how do I build myself up? It's how do I, tear others down to succeed. And then by doing that, we tear ourselves down in a way, because we're not operating from a place of community. We're operating from a place of individualism that is very toxic. And, and you know, it radiates toxicity outwards. And it's because probably we don't really know who we are as individuals, to be able to then meet other people where they're at on their journeys in their identities, whatever communities that they hail from. And so I feel like it, it's so important, and I really appreciate you naming this, to be able to recognize when you have probably never given yourself the permission to give yourself those own individual affirmations, and then to be able to start reclaiming that. Because then once you start doing that work, you can really go outwards and, and find your way towards moving in a communal way and working within the community itself. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's so key that you named the harm. And I also um, do want to mention that saying the affirmations for the first time was very uncomfortable for sure. me, um, particularly because if you're not used to that, right, then that becomes a, a place of discomfort. And then you have to interrogate yourself. It's like, wh- why am I so uncomfortable with saying yep. that I matter or that my voice matters, that my voice has power? 
Um, and then the other part um, that was interesting that you just named uh, was, you know, if we keep functioning at the cost of what white supremacy wants to do to us, then we'll never be able to uphold the joy and uplift the joy that mm. is within us. And I also want to name that joy is complicated. I think that so often we equate it way too too much to happiness. Yes. Uh, and and joy is a complex emotion. And I've done um, a little bit of work and personally and just thinking about how when we think about joy so often it's intermixed with reactions to pain. Something painful or multiple things that have been painful must have happened for certain aspects of joy to occur. So I even think about the Stop Asian Hate movement again and the Black Lives Matter movements. Um, there have been so many so many joyful moments of intersection mm. where these are coming together and learning how can we support each other. Um, the one line that I've written before is how can we get off each other's like subway stops and just go into the community and chat, right? Mm. And, and um, as opposed to just staying on the same same lines and not not just going out there and and trying to figure out and and have conversations. So so there is the pain though that has caused these movements, but somehow we have uplifted and I hope we continue to uplift that jewelry that's necessary in this work. Absolutely. And you are just dropping so much knowledge here. And it's only been like 20 minutes. I'm like, I don't know. How am I going to fit all this in here? This is amazing. Thank you so much. Um, and I think you're totally right. And I love that metaphor, that that imagery of like, how do we how how can we get to a point where we can get off at each other's subway stops and enter into those communities and feel welcome, feel welcome, feel. And I, and I think this is a thing that's a, a big issue with inclusivity. Like when we think about inclusion and the way that I feel like it's talked about right now, we feel like we people outside of us, another community feel like we have to be included into those communities. And like, that's what inclusion is like, oh, well, now I completely understand your experience. So I can come to the barbecue. I can come do whatever this thing. I can come to the Lunar New Year celebration, whatever it might be. And I think that's the wrong way to look at it, because at the end of the day, you can never fully understand somebody else's experience, especially if you don't come from those communities. What we can do is build empathy. We can build towards an understanding and we can get to a point where maybe you do get invited to those spaces and also understanding that it's not always it's not your space. Like we're being welcomed into a space and I, that's OK, because that by being welcomed in, I think it gives us the opportunity to, again, interrogate, you know, the different ways that white supremacy specifically and systemic racism has put up barriers to us feeling welcome or to be able to go into other communities and just exist, you know, and exist as you. Because I think, again, with inclusion right now, it's like you move in and you feel like you take on characteristics of the communities that you want to enter into. And that's appropriation. It's not appreciation. And like we have to move towards that appreciation. And the only way that we can do that is by, again, going back to the internal stuff, working on ourselves, knowing who we are, and then finding ways to have that work ripple outwards. Um, how do we how how do people within education and activist spaces, those are probably two completely different spaces, but whichever one that you want to speak to right now, how do those folks focus on? specifically these four things that are missing from this conversation? Yeah. 
first we think that people need to talk to each other. I mean, I think that sounds so stupid. <laughs> I saw that year who just like spit elbows out. That's, I mean, you're right though. It, you're right. You're right. Because I, I say that laughing, but also very seriously because we, the, the mistakes happen much more often when we assume yes. and we don't have the conversation. So, so first just talk to people. Um, and I, by people, I mean, all teachers, arts teachers in particular and their experiences, music teachers, and then of course our children and activists, right? And it's mm. interesting that you named even that um, education activism can feel very separate, but there are so many aspects of each broad category, I suppose, that that do intersect because we do need education and activism and an education uh, and an activism, we're always educating as well. Mm. So there's that, that overlap. Um, I think that another part that we can consider in terms of our communities and how to empower people within our community is to have intergenerational conversations. Mm. That's the piece that is so often missing. How often is the four-year-old speaking to the teacher who has taught for, um, who was retired actually, for that matter, and continuing to shift their their perspectives. Um, and, and I think, you know, a great model of this for me, I just attended the the first ever API music education gathering Amazing. in America and Canada. And it's just, first of all, wild to say that out loud, right? First ever. Um, sure. But so many of the conversations happened over communal gatherings of food and making food. And I think that there are so many ways that we can have conversations that isn't, um, you know, isn't just on Zoom, isn't just like the DMs on social media, right. but just like at the table eating, very literally, because it is so cultural to just kind of dive deep in that. And also like, yeah, how do you make this food? Um, I, we had such great conversations there. And I think that really was just a reminder that conversations don't have to occur in what I feel a white supremacy has declared are the conversation spaces. Yes. So it doesn't have to happen in the conference room. Um, it's important that it happens there, but sometimes I might, and I even think about the conferences I attend. So often the the best conversations I have are over like the the lunch break, the tea yes. break. Yes. So those are a few things that I've been thinking. And then in terms of um, education as a status quo, I think, and the status quo of education, and you just mentioned inclusion and belonging, two very um, tricky words in America right now, which is very hard to to grapple with for so many educators. I think that we, when we think about the intersection of education and activism, we have to think about the ways that we can um, kind of work the system to our own, for mm. ourselves. In yeah. ways, is it like, well, I'm I'm going to subvert and it's going to be super loud because that might not be you. Right. I think that's really important to know yourself and know like, okay, if I'm a quiet subverter, like by subverting, you're already being loud <laughs> in that way, you know, by reading a book um, that isn't supposed to be read and, and doing it only in the five minutes that you know your administration is not going to come in. You know, I'm not saying necessarily break the law, but I'm saying think about the ways that you can activate and and just get people to question. I think that's the other part. People are mm. very scared to question the status quo and being able to to build those skills in all people is really important. And because you don't have to arrive at a, a product after right. you question. And so I just think even about my own teaching philosophy, I'm always still continuing to question my my work 
um, in activism, like that's something that is continuous and lifelong. And it's okay that there's no flashy thing to produce and show the audience afterwards, right? Because it's for you. Well, I, I think you hit it right on the top of the head at the very beginning. Like it, it is at the end of the day, simple. It starts simply. It's like, we got to be able to have these conversations with each other. And I really appreciate you brought up like stay questioning. I think this conversation I've been having a lot and I had this kind of conversation on an earlier episode in the show with the guest, Paula Pito, we talked about discernment and the ability to learn how to discern and like be able to pick the different things out of the things that you're learning or you're seeing or you're hearing. Because at the end of the day, again, we've talked about white supremacy a lot, but like we grow up in these systems and we learn what they want us to learn, what it wants us to know, which is for all intents and purposes, not a full telling or recounting of history uh, or, or things that have been happening, nor does it educate us on the ways and, and give us the tools to be able to discern when things are not equitable for other people. Like that's a that's a, a huge skill that a lot of us lack or are de in development right now. And I don't think that there ever is, like you said, a finished product, but some an ongoing piece of work is to be able to understand and, and pick out when, oh, that doesn't seem right. Like there's there's something off here that we need to be thinking a little bit more critically about. Yeah. And celebrate when it is right, too. A hundred percent. And not just like, you know, bypassing it because it's so easy in our in American society to just bypass the good news. Right. I even just think about like the nine o'clock, 10 o'clock news, whatever happens, like how many minutes do would one have to wait until you get to like the positivity uh, and the good that's happening in the world if it even makes it. So there's 100%. so inherent good within each of us that we can do. Um, and it happens on the daily. And it's important to find your people too, who are the people who are doing this, this good and and wanting to affect good in the world. Absolutely. And you're and you're you're right again. Like it happens on the daily. And that's the thing. We feel like it's only happened like, oh, the once a week, there's something good happens that we can like point to. And it's like, well, we just have to find it. Like it's there and it is happening all the time around us. We just have to start learning to see and hear and feel and smell and and whatever it is taste that joy like that that's happening in the world you talked about how activism and education overlap a lot like there are like they might be two separate bubbles but there are a lot of things that you know find that middle in the venn diagram um that cause that overlap i would say uh, maybe then we just talked about assuming but i'm going to assume that activism kind of overlap with literally everything in a similar way yeah, I think it's important, you know, it's the other part of that overlap is that I think it's important for everyone to define education and activism for themselves. Because okay. just all forms of education and activism, right? When we think education, we think school. That's like very often the, the first thought bubble. And then when we think activism, we think protest, right? And so, but those are just only two spaces, right? So where it overlap um, for you personally, or if it doesn't overlap, like why not? It goes back to the questioning. So I think it's, for me, it's it's that continued questioning of what does this look like in my own life, right? Do I even describe myself as an activist? I mean, that's something that I continue to grapple with as well, sure. like semi part of my bio now, but I always <laughs> just think it's kind of strange, right? Because I should try to activate every day in whatever capacity. Sure. Uh, what is the difference between that and someone who's like an activist, right? Because I don't necessarily liken myself to the Yuri Kochiyama or basically Fox, 
Um, but I do think that I activate in, in ways that are novel. And I think that's what's exciting about both activism and education, because education, of course, does not have to just happen in schools. And to bring it back to the arts, you know, for me, I think there are ways to subvert traditional systems of um, or, or even traditional ways of thinking about social justice through the arts, right? How much of, of art is included in the work of education and and activism that is needed. I think about yeah. all the music that is created, all the music that continues to be created, right? We can't just keep saying that protest music is from the 60s. Like that is just, it's not that it's not relevant. It's just, that's a long time ago now, right? right. Um, so we can rec- recognize that history, but there's been so much music that has been created and continues to be created. Like I even think about for Asian American activism of Jason Chu and Alan Z's album mm. um, that uh, face value, I believe that includes just so much history, but through Asian American rap and a hip hop right. and incredible and, and such um, so valuable from them to um, we belong by magnetic North and their tw- um, release in 2021. And, and so this music out there exists for, for people to listen to. And that's like the other part of it for me, um, musically, music is such a timestamp of what's happening in the mm-hmm. world. And if we continue to, you know, I think about like very often the, uh, our younger selves, of course, would have more time to just be like, oh, like, let's listen to the radio or like, what can I download on Kazaa or Napster, right? <laughs> Kazaa, uh, deep cut. Yes. Or Winamp, oh my gosh. Right? Like, and have it play, um, <laughs> potentially download a virus while that is too. But, but like, you know, we would go on so many, like just explorative, explorative, but not appropriative ways sure. of understanding ourselves and like, oh, why do I like this? Why do I not like this? What do I resonate with? And that's ultimately what it comes back to for me. Like music is such a, a way to to connect and to understand oneself as well as understand the community. So I think that people who are outside of like education and activism and, and those who are in it can continue to just explore and understand themselves through arts, through music. Um, and it's okay to not like things too. I think that's really important to name out loud, right? Just because I'm naming right. these songs, listen to it and you can hate it um but you have to understand or wonder why do you hate it a hundred percent and that was actually going to be the question was how do we how do we folks who sit outside of those spaces specifically address these things and it's and you named it right there we just have to keep we have to define it for ourselves and we have to keep exploring not appropriating but exploring these different things that are out there and learning for ourselves forming our own opinions stay questioning Stay questioning, stay critical, and not only interrogate the bad stuff, but find the joy, find the good things that are happening out there as well. So I really appreciate you naming that. Um, I came across a speech that you gave at a rally in New York two years ago, and it was incredibly moving. Like, I was like, okay, I'm not going to cry. And I was like, by the end of it, I was like, okay, I'm like, I've I'm got tears in my eyes. But you talked about a lot of the stuff that you're talking about here in this conversation. And I wanted to ask you, have you felt that things have changed for the better, for the worse? How has that how has that shifted in these past two years? Yeah, it's been a while since someone's asked me this, actually. So this is an interesting reflection moment for me now. Um, I do think that things have shifted for better and worse. And I think that's important to acknowledge in mm. any movement um, of 
for justice, towards justice and liberation. So I do want to acknowledge, and you know, this comes off a week, and I don't know if you've been following news in New York, but of continued um, anti-Asian hate that has occurred in New York very recently, mm-hmm. and and with youth as well. Yeah. And it's very tricky for me because um, because something that I uh, feel is very unique to my positionality as an Asian American woman who teaches black, uh, mostly black children. Um, that there's continued community to be built. I think that's the first walk takeaway that we must continue to do the work for children and consider to consider what the ways that we as adults can create spaces for youth to interact. So I think about it in terms of also like the history chapter book, right? Like the history on one country was very separate from the history on another country sure. and it wasn't yeah. perceptive, right? Like that's not really how history worked. Um, but it was like, here's a, a chapter on Spain and here's a right. chapter on Australia, it right? It does feel like it's like the history starts with America and then it's like they just put the countries in as like yeah. we interact with them. Like, wait a second, what's happening here? Right, yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't like, it's not major friendly. It's like, that's yeah. not actually how it works. You know, people migrated, people moved and they interacted. And what were those interactions? And it's, I'm so glad that you you name yourself as a storyteller. That's um, in some ways what I'm trying to do in my dissertation too, just share different stories um, so I think in terms of how how it's shifted um, for the positive, I see so much, so many great ways that different local organizations are coming together to build these spaces. Um, I mm-hmm. even think about, for example, in Chinatown in New York City, there's so many different moments of of joy and and sharing and dancing that are are created now, and I think that. There, I don't know that that's necessarily a direct reflection of what um, I spoke about, but I'm so glad that those spaces more importantly exist now and on a regular basis, right? Because I think that's the other sure. part of a rally or protest. That's one moment in time. And we have to think about ways that are continuous and continual yes. for, for everyone. So so that's one way that I think that, you know, that the child, that, yeah, there's hope for children for sure and hope from children to to be in these spaces that can be intergenerational. And then in terms of what's important to acknowledge is that there does continue to be rampant anti-Blackness in the Asian community. And I as, and I say that as an Asian American woman, that we we must continue to have the conversations with our own communities. Mm. And it's hard. It's really hard. Um, and sometimes I think the other part of activism is that it's okay to sometimes not have them and then come back later. Sure. Um, you know, because it just takes time. It doesn't. It doesn't happen overnight. I can't even say myself that I realized everything like overnight after right. one sleep. Um, so everyone is at a different point in their own journey. And as long as we continue to sustain the work that that brings communities together and also creates space for individual communities to feel at their own pace, then I think that we are moving towards greater change. Um, And of course, we need to continue, of course, advocating for teaching of API history and Black history and all ethnic studies for that matter at all levels. A hundred percent. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think it's, I, I appreciate you taking the time to have that reflection first off, because you know, it's like, I feel like there's so much in the speech that you gave that is, was really foundational to that moment. And I was thinking about it as I was watching it. I was like, 
you know, I, I hope, I hope just because based off the energy and emotion that were radiating out of every word and every, every, everything that you shared, I was just found myself thinking like, I really hope that there have been shifts in a positive direction for this. And I'm glad that you're able to name and, and see some of those. And to also name that, like, even within our own community, like we got to do better. Like, and we got to continue to have these questions specifically around anti-blackness because you hop into a, a <laughs> you hop into an Instagram post comment section and folks, it is not great. Like it is bad. And it just goes to show like, we can't rest on our laurels. And we also have to recognize that sometimes, like you said, we have to step away from the conversation because we got to protect ourselves and our own individual well-being and mental health and be able to, because if we can't do that, then we're not going to be able to show up in the ways that we want to. So that's so, so important to name. And so one quick point that I think we can learn from my students is that my students are very, and many of them now are able to, and particularly since 2020 have been able to very clearly, of course, um, as they always have been able to say Black Lives Matter and why Black Lives Matter, mm. but also able to name why it is important to stop Asian hate. And I think that that provides so much hope for me also as a person to to just hear children explain it so simply. Um, and so just continuing to to find those those ways that we can interact with with children because I think so often we are always like seeking the adults but honestly children are the truth speakers and and the people that we can learn so much from a hundred percent and like I mean it just takes us right back to that be the us a circular but also forward pushing conversation of like we got to have the youth in these rooms and all the rooms and we got to be having the conversation it's as simple as that folks we got to be able to have these conversations with each other with the people in our lives and especially with our young ones because they're the ones carrying the future forward. And that's that's pretty important, I think. You know, it's important that we're doing it now, and it's important that we have an eye on the future as well. Alice, you have just been educating me and our audience on so many different things and in a very, very short amount of time. And I really, really appreciate that. I really appreciate all that you do, not only not only that you've done for us here, but that you do for your students, for your entire community, for Brooklyn itself, for New York as a state, all that you're doing there. And it takes a lot of time, energy, and effort, and emotion, and, and and everything to do all of these things. Who are you learning from right now? I am learning from Dr. Bettina Love, and I just want to read her definition of abolitionist teaching, which we won't go into today, but I feel that you will find this very riveting, I hope. So she writes, abolitionist teaching is working in solidarity with communities of color while drawing on the imagination, creativity, refusal, remembering, visionary thinking, healing, rebellious spirit, boldness, determination, and subversiveness of abolitionists to eradicate injustice in and out of schools. And another excerpt is, art is a home place. Abolitionist teaching is dependent on art for resistance, for remembering, for joy, for love, for healing, and for humanity. So, if you haven't heard of Dr. Pashina Love, please read, listen, do everything with her. She is just truly incredible. And I, um, she has a new book called Punished for Dreaming, and that's coming out in this fall. And she writes a lot about just empowering folks and while, while still centering joy and also about freedom dreaming and how schools so often can be oppressive complexes for for children and how we must as people 
just comfort and center the joy in our children. So that's one person. And then another person who I wonder if um, this is someone that has come up for you, Patrick, is Dr. Jenny Wang, who has um, who runs the Instagram account Agents for Mental Health. And I've been able to interact with her on a couple of different mediums at this point. We spoke in a podcast um, a couple of months ago. Mm. And I wanted to share one of her latest posts. As a child of immigrants, you may have normalized exhaustion and struggle as a necessary part of a valued life. And yet you might also resent others who seem to live with ease and freedom that you can never imagine accessing for yourself. Your sacrifice of mind and body does not necessarily prove how much you care. It may only show others how little you value yourself and how little you believe you deserve from others. As a martyr, we gain the pride of being able to do it all, often all alone, but we lose greatly in terms of peace, ease, connection, and joy. Putting yourself last does not teach others to value more. It gives them permission to continue putting you last. And that's a really punchy one for mm. me um, because I think that it hits on so many points, including the the importance of valuing and putting yourself first um her book permission to come home has so many gems and and so i just i continue to learn from both of these incredible women in in the field and who are doing work that i think is is innovative and and revolutionary in ways that just hasn't been modeled for for me before in my personal and professional life. And I think that as long as we continue to seek the innovators in our communities, we will continue to grow ourselves. Uh, seek the innovators in our community so we can, can continue to grow ourselves. You are the one dropping gems. <laughs> I'm like, you were dropping gems all over this interview and I really, really appreciate it. Listeners, we will have uh, Dr. Love and Dr. Wang's work all linked in the show notes, so you'll be able to get all of the things that they have to offer. And Alice, I really appreciate you sharing those things from both of them, because I think it is just so important to recognize that it's okay to put yourself first, and also that it's okay to, to like you said, do the work of subversion, because we live in this society that is constantly forcing us into one box or another. And we have to be able to figure out and learn and develop the tools to resist that. So that way we can create the spaces that ne don't necessarily have the walls that or the barriers to what it is that we really want, which at the end of the day is freedom for all of us, for everybody, and equitable freedom at that. Not just one person getting, getting it on top of another person. It's the fact that we can lift everyone up together. And Dr. Dr. Jenny shared something on Instagram Live once about wanting to not just be the best for herself, but be the best so everybody can, like everybody else has the opportunity to be the best. And that's something that she shared that's always stuck with me is like, you know, I want to do good at what I do so other people have the opportunity to do so. And like you said, you grew up, we grew up without models for a lot of this stuff. And we're really lucky right now. We're really privileged to find folks like Dr. Love and like Dr. Wang who are doing the work to model what some of these things are that we could have used 20 years ago, but now we got them now. And like, luckily, and like what you're doing as an educator, especially for young children, like is so important because we're able to now model that for the folks who are coming up behind us and who are going to carry the torch forward as we move forward in this world. And so really, really appreciate that again. All of that stuff will be linked in the show notes for everybody listening right now. Alice, 
Thank you so much for your time. One final question. How do we, how does our audience support you moving forward? This is the hardest question of all <laughs> because I can keep talking about, you know, everything else, but how can I be supported? Well, I, uh, I'm i on Instagram at, at Music with Miss Alice, and I would just love your continued support for my students um, in whichever way, whether it is through the shares of their joy and what they create. I think it's so important. I share that I'm an amplifier of this voice um, because my goal is just to hold the microphone to mm. what they and so I hope that you can amplify their voices. Um, and then for me, I think me personally, I think, you know, if this, if listening to this has really resonated with you, feel free to, to share that with me. And I think that it's important to continue to have these conversations and, and continue on our own journeys. Um, and the final thing I think is I'm curious to know how affirmations have played a part in your life, if at all. And if you would love to continue to have that conversation with me, I'd love to hear about it. Mm, I love that. That's I, I keep getting so many great answers to this question. And this is one of the best ones. And I love that last one. You know, folks, if you've, if you've learned or figured out how affirmations play a role in your life, go ahead and reach out to Alice. You know how to find her. You can do it right here in the show notes, or you can just type it, type that handle in right now into Instagram. Um, also remember folks have a certain level of capacity for things. So if you don't get a response right away, it's okay. Like if you don't get a response at all, that's also okay. Just know that people are out there and these things happen. And like, we, like everybody who operates in all of these different spaces, trust me, tries to get to as many people as possible. I know it might not seem like that sometimes, but that's what it is because there's a lot of work to be done and social media is, but one tiny, tiny piece of the larger work at play. Yeah, and thank you for modeling that because it's so important to say that. Um, like, because I say in theory, you know, of course, I would love to hear your voices. Right. But it really depends on on my time of year, like what what is happening in my own personal life. And, you know, of course, like compensate folks too, right? Like mm. if you want to be supported, feel free to compensate. And because it is labor ultimately. 100%. So, uh, we can all be supported. A hundred percent. You heard it here, folks. We can all be supported. And it's not just important to, it's not just like, oh, here's a, a couple dollars. Like it's the purpose behind why you're compensating and supporting. Like, cause we don't have a history of being compensated in that way for the work and the labor that's put in to do all of these things, to have all of these conversations because it is labor. It is work. And we, everybody who's doing it out here deserves to be fairly compensated and equitably compensated for that exact work. Like we're seeing it right now with the WGA, the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA. Like that's exactly what they're fighting for is equitable pay. And uh, like we keep saying it and we keep saying it on this show. Like we live in a white supremacist society that makes us feel like we can only have the scraps that are available because we it, it's scarce out here. And it's not true. It's not true, folks. And right now we're doing the work to make sure that we can live in a society that honors and respects us in the way that we need to be. So, Alice, thank you so much for this education, for the privilege of your story, of your time, and of all of the knowledge that you've shared with us here today. It has been, again, an honor and a privilege for me to be able to have you, a friend, and somebody that I look up to in this community and in this work, come on here and share all of this with me in this audience. So thank you so much. Thank you, Patrick. 
Absolutely. Everybody else, you know what it is. You can find everything that we talked about right here in the show notes. You can also find us on Instagram if you'd like, at Conversation Pod Piece. If you do feel inclined to leave a rating or review on whatever it is that you're watching or listening to this on right now, we would greatly appreciate that. And if you're interested in supporting this show in any way in the future, feel free to hop in our DMs or visit our website, conversationpeacepod.com. Until next time, I'm Patrick Armstrong, and this has been Conversation Peace. Thanks, Alice.